0: going to be going over to Hebrews chapter 4 and our precedent to look to Romans chapter 11. And in Romans chapter 11, of course, the first question is, did God cast away his people? And the answer to that is a double negative, no, absolutely not. God forbid, that's the whole concept of that phrase. And Evidence of that fact that God has not cast away his people. God has not apostatized all of Israel. It's exemplified by the Apostle Paul. He holds himself up as an example. He is a born-again Jew. Saved after Christ, of course, had ascended. Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And Paul gets saved. Other Jews were getting saved. Obviously, if they're getting saved, they have not been apostatized. So the book of Hebrews is an appeal to Jews, as is the book of Galatians. Used today, texts primarily are used against replacement theology, or what is known as liturgical Christianity, uh, who believe that there is an aspect of the Mosaic Covenant that still is in place. And, of course, that is the apostatized version of the Mosaic Covenant. And God offers salvation as a gift, uh, but we have to keep the Mosaic Covenant to some degree or aspects of it in order to keep or preserve our own salvation. So God does some, we do some other things. And, of course, that is a vast majority of, of liturgical Christianity believe that. Circumcision is replaced with infant baptism. Uh, the priesthood of Israel is replaced with a clergyman uh, in the church, a priest or the pastor of a church. That's false. Uh, the nation of Israel is replaced with the church. That's false. And on and on. The liturgical calendar of Judaism is replaced with the liturgical cra- ca- calendar or the lit- lit- liturgy calendar of Christianity, and uh, none of this is true, none of this is biblical, but it does show that God is still trying to reach uh, those people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So simply because they are in churches or religions that practice these things, even Judaism, God is still seeking to bring them to Christ and to draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Hebrews chapter 4 and God's long-suffering with the the vacillating Jews here, vacillating Jews, is the substance of the text. They were being persuaded. Now it's 60, 30-some years after the crucifixion of Christ. And many of the Jews are being persuaded. They're Christians, but they're being persuaded to return back to the temple, the Old Testament priesthood the Jewish holy days, uh, and these practices, uh, and to abandon the church. That's really the substance of why the book of Hebrews says, forsaking not the assembling of yourself together as a manner of some is, even more so as we see the day of Christ approaching. Don't abandon the church, but stay faithful to the church and the new covenant. The church, new covenant are synonymous. Israel and Mosaic Covenant are synonymous. We're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant, we're under the New Covenant because we are the church, (laughs) we're not Israel. So there's probably no better place in the Word of God than Hebrews chapter 4 to see the practical application of the dynamic of God's grace regarding the issue of faith through the workings of the Spirit from and through the inspired Word. The very existence of the epistles to the Hebrews and Galatians reveals God's long-suffering grace in his continuing appeal to Jews and their misconceptions contradicting justification purely as a gift of grace. We find it in the book of Galatians. We find it in the book of Hebrews. Don't go back there. That's incompletion. You go back there, you're denying your faith in completion. Therefore, by the very fact that that is the direction that you are moving, uh, shows that you are not saved people. It's a hypothetical. So this constant appeal to Jews reveals the fact that God has not given away, or cast away his people, Romans 11. We're laying the foundation for that before we come into chapter 11, I think next week. We'll give you an outline of Romans chapter 11. But faith alone is a contradiction against what the priesthood of Israel was falsely teaching regarding the Mosaic Covenant. Practically every local church in our community who holds to a variation of of, uh, covenant theology or replacement theology is doing exactly the same thing. And they are teaching that faith alone is a contradiction against what they believe. Otherwise, it's faith, grace, plus works, not grace alone, faith alone. So this appeal to return to the Mosaic Covenant by the Judaizers within professing Christianity continued into the church age, threatening the truths of completeness and the once for all new covenant blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ which we have established in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10, 10 verse 12 10 verse 14 concluding in Romans chapter 10 verse 18 where the remission of sins is there is no more offering for sins now we have that same truth taught in Galatians uh excuse me, Colossians chapter 2 verse 10 where it says there what? We are complete in Jesus Christ. Just as Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10, 12, 14, and 18 talks about the one offering of Jesus Christ which has perfected us forever under the day of redemption. That's perfect positional sanctification in Jesus Christ which is the outcome of justification by grace through faith. If you have been given the righteousness of Christ and your salvation is dependent upon that righteousness, not your own, then you are perfectly positionally sanctified in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. So this appeal to return to the Mosaic Covenant by the Judaizers threatened the very truth of this completeness. And the constant appeal to the Jews to persuade them of the superiority of the completeness of the new covenant reveals God had not cast away his people. He had not apostatized them and would continue to draw them to faith alone in Christ alone. Now, very early in the book of Acts, we can see that the majority of the beginnings of Christianity were Jewish. Jesus is a a Jew. Almost all the apostles, some believe Matthew too could have been a Jew, but almost all of them, if not all of them, were Jews. Now certainly, we can see on the day of Pentecost, the thousands that were saved that day were Jews. Later on, in what we would call the second event, the second great uh, evangelistic event, The the thousands that got saved then were primarily Jews. Those Jews were scattered. It's called the Diaspora, the dispersion. By persecution, they went into all the world. And they were the seed families by which when the Apostle Paul went into those areas, where did he find those Jews? In the synagogue? And from them started churches. They left the synagogue and became local churches. So this epistle to the Hebrews addresses the hypothetical Jew professing to be a Christian. (coughs) It's hypothetical, otherwise it addresses a hypothetical issue. But who's being persuaded by the Judaizers To abandon the new covenant and their local churches to return to the Mosaic covenant. To to return to the temple and its sacrifices, the Mosaic covenant holy days, and to the Levitical priesthood. To do so is to abandon completeness for incompleteness. Why would you do that? So this would manifest that these professing believers had not understood the message of the gospel, teaching the completeness offered in the one sacrifice of Christ, nor the Melchizedekian priesthood of all believers in Christ under the new covenant. Now those are the foundations of the destructions of early Christianity. What were those two attacks? The gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Second, that there was a new clergy. And remember Christ's epistle to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, chapter 2? They held those there who tolerated the Nicolaitans, the overlords of the laity, the clergy-laity division. And by the time of the uh, church at uh, the Nicolaitans, or of uh, the, not the laity, Thyatira, there, now it had become a doctrine. And that was the destruction of the church. You destroy the gospel, you destroy the foundation of the priesthood of all believers. You destroy the whole purpose of the church. That's what the destroyer has done. Now most seem to miss or ignore, the very obvious context of the epistle to the hebrews you get the, you miss the context you miss the whole purpose of the epistle and the warning is of a person if a person remains under the mosaic covenant or abandons the new covenant for incompleteness and shadows that person is actually lost no matter what they profess they don't understand the doctrine of propitiation. If you don't understand it, how can you believe it? If you don't understand the justification of a gift of righteousness to you is solely by offered by grace and received through faith, not in any of your participation at all, then you're believing in self-righteousness. <clears throat> that person is actually lost. And secondly, to forsake the assembly of the church to return to the Mosaic Covenant in any form is to abandon Christ and deny the completeness he offers in the gift of the new covenant, complete salvation, perfect possession of sanctification. Now almost every denomination of Christianity falls into this category, even though they call, call themselves Christians. They don't have an Nobidical priesthood, but they have a priesthood. Right? Now we believe in the priesthood of all believers. We don't believe that there is a clergy who lords over the congregation or Episcopalian polity. We believe in congregational polity. What is that? All believer priests uh, are to govern the church. They're not governed by a hierarchy of Episcopalians. So most seem to miss this whole context. Now, let's go then over to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, as we bow this morning before you. We know, Lord, that you've given us this text for a purpose. Help us to divide it properly. Help us to understand it and use it the way you've given us to use it. And though, Lord, today we probably will not use it much to deal with Jews who fall into this category, the vast majority of professing Christianity has. And we pray, Lord, that as we learn it and learn to use it properly, that you'd help us to be more effective in reaching those who are entrapped in these false uh, doctrines. And Lord, uh, thereby are no longer looking for the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. So having established the first three chapters of Romans, or excuse me, of Hebrews, dealing with the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant, the superiority of Jesus over Moses, (laughs) and uh, the superiority that is now the church has compared to what the nation of Israel had, that is completeness, he comes to chapter 4 and he makes an appeal. He says, let us therefore fear. And he's talking about, there's these hypothetical people uh, within the church who are Jews but are vacillating back and forth between the new covenant and the Mosaic covenant. Now what he's talking about is the corruption of the Mosaic covenant. That somehow the Mosaic covenant, by participation in it, contributes to your salvation. But well, remember, the Mosaic covenant was given to provide practical sanctification or a definition of what is sin. But by the very nature that you are looking to that old covenant, that Mosaic covenant, for sin, recognizes the fact that you have it, and its conclusion is that we're all sinners. That's Romans 3:23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. Uh, The rest of the chapter, there are none righteous. No, not one. There are none that seeketh after God. We're all together gone astray. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. That's what the law concludes. That's what the Mosaic Covenant... Mosaic Covenant doesn't say to anyone, you've been pretty good. You're okay. Mosaic Covenant says you're guilty. Romans 3.19 So let us fear lest Unless a promise being left of us of entering into his rest, that's Jesus and the complete salvation, the offering and the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest type of the Old Testament. The Sabbath was a type of Christ. It promised complete rest. Now, was God tired after he finished his six days of creation? God said, I'm, exa- I'm absolutely exhausted. I'm just going to take a day of rest. No, what did what did he take that rest for? It was done. It was completed. It was testimony, it's completion. And that he was pleased. He was satisfied with it. What is that seventh day? Propitiation. That's what the seventh day is typical of. That you could enter into the rest of God's propitiation. He was satisfied. With the sacrifice that offered of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8. You say, preacher, you're making a lot of leaps here. Well, quite frankly, it's pretty simple. This is exactly what Hebrews chapter 4 is talking about. Jesus and the complete salvation he offers in the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest type. Jesus is the Sabbath. And when you enter into Jesus, you've entered into that rest. Because why? It's complete. Now understand this. Again, when you receive salvation, you receive a complete work. Positionally, it's already done. Oh yes, there are some things that still have to be done. We still have the redemption of the body. We still have the creation of the new heaven and earth. They're not done yet, actually, but as far as God's concerned, they're done. Because they're based upon the immutability of his problems. So he says, uh, uh, left uh, of us entering into arrest, and uh, any of you should seem to what? Come short of it. Now, I've said this many times before, but I used to run the mile in high school. And we'd run around that 220, 440, I guess it was, uh, track. We'd run around that four times. And uh, the goal was to cross that finish line four times. But you only completed the race when you crossed it the fourth time. Not the third time, not the second, not the first one. Four times around that circle or that oval, you completed the race. <clears throat> and so he's saying here, you jump, come short of crossing over the finish line. Now what is that? That's putting your faith in Christ. As soon as you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and trusted in what he has done for you, as far as God is concerned, you've already crossed the finish line. Everything is complete. Now you're still at the beginning of that finish line. You're sitting there waiting for the starter gun to fire. But as God says, just as soon as you put your faith in Christ, you've already crossed the finish line. The race is over. You are complete in Jesus Christ, Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. Verse 2. For unto us was the gospel preached? Now he's talking about Jews. <clears throat> as well as unto them, Gentiles. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed, not being united with by faith. Now there were some Jews that came out of Egypt who were a mixed multitude. So they were part Egyptian. Some of them were Jewish people who had been corrupted. Um, there were individuals, women who were Egyptian, were married by Jewish men, or, or uh, <coughs> Jewish uh, Egyptian men who had taken Jewish wives. They came out was a mixed multitude, and some of those who came out, out of that text here would have been equivalent to Gentiles. And uh, it says, for unto us was the gospel preached as well unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed, not being intermingled with faith or by faith. In them that heard the hearing of the word of God's promise. For we which have believed do enter into his rest, as he said. And I've sworn in my wrath, that's the word of God's promise, (coughs) if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. What's that? Revelation 13, 8. That Christ the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Why is it finished? Why are those works finished? Based upon the immutable promise of God and and, uh, God uh, in the Redeemer in Galatians 3, 15. As far as God's concerned, what God promises is already done. When you receive the gift of salvation, you receive a completed salvation. But the question in the hypothetical book of Romans, our book of Hebrews, is if you go back, you haven't understood the completeness that God offers. And you haven't understood the finished work of redemption. You may believe in Jesus, but if you don't believe and understand that what He offers is a completed salvation and what you receive is a completed salvation. Then you haven't believed and that's going to manifest itself by going back. So he goes on here and he says, verse four, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again. If they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore, it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. There were some that did not enter in the mixed multitude. God spent forty years in the wilderness purging out unbelief, and it was only those of faith that went into the promised land under Joshua. <clears throat> Again, he a certain day. Again, just like the Seventh-day Sabbath, saying in David, today, after so long a time as it is said, today, today, right now, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Now he comes to Joshua. For if Jesus, now this is the Old Testament Joshua, the Greek translation of Joshua is Jesus. If Jesus or Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Now, did Jesus give the Old Testament believer rest? Sure. Did Joshua give them rest? No. There was another day. That other day was future day, when Jesus on the cross of Calvary would provide rest. But Joshua of the Old Testament couldn't give that. And constantly throughout all the days of Joshua, they were in the promised land. They never really ever got the whole promised land. They made compromises to stay within it. Although God could have easily delivered them, they chose to compromise instead. So he says, if if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remained it therefore rest to the people of God. <clears throat> For he that is uh, is entered into his rest, that's through the door of faith in Jesus, what he would accomplish, he has also ceased from his own works as God did from his. Why? Why did God cease from his own work? Because he was tired? He needed a day of rest? He was exhausted? No. It is finished. It is good. His work was complete, and he rested. That is the whole concept of this verse. There remaineth therefore rest to his people. And if you've entered into that rest, otherwise that completion, you've also ceased, just as God did from his own work. You don't need to do anymore, it was done. Now that's the context we bring into verse 11. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest through the the door of faith into that rest stop trying to earn your salvation stop going back to the Mosaic Covenant if you're going to labor for anything labor to what? enter into that rest (coughs) lest any man what? fall after the same example of unbelief what was the unbelief? Kadesh Barnea When God sent the spies into the land, two came back with a good report, ten came back with a, what was it? An unfaithful report, a false report. We can't do it, there are giants here. They're too big for us. Two came back and said, nothing's too big for our God. We can do this. This is is no big deal. If God goes before us, there's no problem here at all. That's faith. And he goes on and he says this. For the word of God is quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now read here like this. For the word of God is the promises of God. All that God's word says he's going to do, God will do. So he says that word of God, the thing that you trust in, the thing that you put your faith in, is quick. It's life-giving. It's powerful. It's powerful above and beyond anything the world knows, and sharper than any two-edged sword. There is no sword that can compare to it. No sword that can beat, can defeat it. Why? Because it's able to pierce even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Now, nobody in this world thought that that could happen anymore. Once God breathed in Adam the breath of life and and Adam became became a living soul, they thought never again could the soul and spirit be divided. But the word of God is able to do that. It is able to divide asunder the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now what's that saying? God knows you. God knows what you think. God knows your emotions. God knows your heart. God knows everything there is about you. And God knows if your faith is resting in Christ. It's not. You're not going to deceive God. You can deceive everybody else by looking good, smelling good, and acting good. But you're not going to deceive God. He knows what your faith is. That's what the word of God teaches us. Piercing even, deciding asunder of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's how much God knows us. Verse 13. Neither is there any creature That is not manifest in his sight. I open up the book and I read it and I see the heart and mind of God. God looks at Lance Ketchum and I'm already an open book to him. That's what this is talking about. There is not any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with which we have to do. (laughs) What does that say? God looks beyond your facade. And he sees your heart, soul, and mind. He knows everything there is about you. You're not going to fool God. When it comes to this issue of faith in Christ, it must be pure and it must be absolute. There is nothing about you that you can rest in yourself. Your Sabbath is not Christ plus you. Your Sabbath is Christ plus nothing. You rest solely in Him. And then you have entered into His rest. That's essentially what the word faith means it means to rest. To trust, and if that's not the issue, then if if there's some question of here that you participate in some way in what God offers, then you are you are not resting solely in Christ. He is not your Sabbath. So he goes on and he says, verse fourteen. Seeing then. I like the way that's phrased. He says, you're open and manifest in the sight of God. So he says, what? Seeing them. What is God telling us? He says, seeing them. We we understand that we are open and manifest in the sight of God. There's nothing about us that God does not see. God does not know. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Now, that is a hallelujah verse of scripture. The more I come to know God and how big he is, the more I come to know me and how small I am. How insignificant, how vile I am compared to God. The more Romans chapter 3 verse 23 comes alive when I apply it to me, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That there is none righteous, no, not one. And if it were not for God, there are none who seek after him. We are all together gone astray. So he says, seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens Otherwise, we have a high priest that's greater than the old Levitical high priest who who daily ministers and offers sacrifice day after day after day. We have a high priest who has entered into the heavens, a holy of holies of God who sets upon the behemoth seat of Christ. That's our high priest. And his name is Jesus, the Son of God. Because of that, let us hold fast our profession of faith in Christ. That is, let's hold fast to our rest. Don't let this slip. Don't go back to co-redemption, the evil devil doctrine that the Pharisees led into Christianity, the priesthood of Israel led into Christianity, or led into Judaism, don't go back to that. Don't move away from your rest in Christ. Now, was the Old Testament believer any less secure in his faith than you are in yours? Was he any less complete? No. He was just as eternally secure in his as you are in yours. The question is not whether or not you could lose it. The question is whether or not you have it. If you have been born again of the Spirit of God, you are sealed by that Spirit of God under the day of redemption. He is your earnest. He is God's signature upon your soul that you belong to Him. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And what is in God's hand, your soul, no man can pluck you out of the Father's hand over and over again. But the greatest testimony to that reality is Colossians 2, verse 10. We are complete in Christ. Perfect tense. Once for all, forever complete. We've been crucified with Christ. We're buried with Christ. We're risen with Christ. We're seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father in heaven, who is our high priest, Hebrews 4, 14. He has passed into the heavens. So, because of that, let us hold fast our perfection. Don't go back to incompleteness. Rest in the finished work of Christ. Now remember, who's this epistle written to again? The Hebrews. If God had cast them away, would He have written this epistle? Certainly not. He says in verse 15, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. we got a different high priest than the Levitical priesthood. We have a high priest, Jesus, who is touched, who can identify, who understands the feelings of our infirmities. Now, he never sinned was all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted, but he was without sin. But he has the feelings of our infirmities. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. How? Through faith in faith. That's how you come boldly to the throne of grace. Through faith in faith. Now, that we may obtain mercy. Mercy is something we do not deserve. Otherwise, receiving something we do not deserve. The very reason why we understand that salvation is merciful, the very first aspect of repentance is that we are asking God for something we do not deserve. If you are believing that you have done Some things where you become a participant in your own salvation, you are saying to God, I deserve salvation. Over the years, I've asked many people, what have you done to deserve to enter into God's heaven? And I'll say, well, I've been baptized, I go to the church, I give money. I've been a pretty good person. Uh, You know, I help the poor and, uh, you know, I pray for the needy and many other things that they might add to that. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do. And over and over and over again we have different reasons. What are they really saying? I'm lost. I'm lost, I'm on my way to hell. He says here to them, Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy, otherwise what we don't deserve the first operation of repentance is to realize that salvation is a gift that you don't deserve. You deserve judgment. You deserve hell. You deserve nothing from God. But when you do that, that we may obtain mercy and what? Find grace that's enabling to help in the time of need. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Commentary, I'm going to give you a quote from him, I think gives a very accurate interpretation of this important necessity in understanding the correlation between hearing the word of God and obeying the word of God as this relates to the issue of faith in Hebrews chapter 4 and as well in Romans chapter 11, 16, obeying the gospel. So this distinction is consistent with our understanding of hearing in the Old Testament If a person believes in God and believes that the message he hears is from God, that's faith, and then faith presumes obedience to what the word of God says, or that professed faith is not real. Otherwise, if I believe that God has given me a book and has given me instructions of how he wants me to live, and I say I believe the book, I believe it's the word of God, and then I don't try to live according to the word of God, that's equal unbelief. That's the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. Here's what the Jameson Fawcett and Brown commentary says, gospel preached unto them in type the earthly Canaan, wherein they failed to realize perfect rest, suggesting to them that they should look beyond to the heavenly land of rest to which faith is the avenue, and from which unbelief excludes as it did from the earthly Canaan. The word preached, literally, the word of hearing, the word heard by them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard. So the Syriac and the Old Latin version, these are old translations of the Bible that preclude, uh, you know, even older than what some of the oldest manuscripts that we have, uh, who align with the received text of the Bible, uh, older than any manuscripts. Uh, As the world did not unite with the hearers in faith, the word heard being the food which is the bread of life must pass into flesh and blood through the man's appropriating it to himself in faith. Hearing alone is as of little value as undigested food in a bad stomach. The whole of the oldest extant manuscript authority supports a different reading, unmingled as they were, Greek accusative case agreeing with them, in faith with its hearers, that is, with its, unbel- with its believing obedient hearers as Caleb and Joshua. So here is used for obey in the context of Hebrews 4.7. To hear and to believe automatically translates into obey. If you hear and believe and don't obey, what is that? They enter not in because of unbelief. So today if we will hear his voice, disobedient instead of being blended in the same body, separated themselves as as Korah, the false priest, a tacit reproof to like separatists from the Christian assembling together. These what these Jews were about to do. They were about to disassemble from the Christian assembly, to go back to the Mosaic Covenant and the Old Testament assembly, or the synagogue. Now, we have to close up here. Now, obviously, the emphasis of Hebrews chapter 4 is upon the failure of the vast majority of elect national flesh Israel in the test trial of the genuineness of their faith in God's word of promise. However, the emphasis is not merely upon the failure, but upon the failure of the proper response, which is the five verbs of faith, repent, believe, confess, call, and receive, and God's word of promise. All are acts of obedience. We do what God says to do. Now, secondly, in the Old Testament context, the deliverance of God was merely physical deliverance of his people into a place of promise according to the Abrahamic covenant this is the topology of the Old Testament not the Mosaic covenant Uh, the Abrahamic covenant was a place of rest conditioned solely upon a real and genuine faith that was real enough to act upon God's promise that's what Abraham did Abraham said God says here do this and God acted upon that promise or Abraham acted upon that promise So this is the way the word faith is used in the central example of justification by faith in the example of Abraham and the offering of Isaac. Real faith acts upon God's word by actually doing what God's word directed Abraham to do. And Paul has spoken about this in detail in Romans chapter 4. This is the same context as Romans chapter 10, 16. They have not all obeyed the gospel. So in Romans chapter 4, 1 through 7, God offers Abraham as the example of believing God's word and doing what God says as faith. And God says, God counted that for righteousness. In that sense, he imputed the righteousness of God to Abraham. David is also used as an example in verse 6. Even as David also described the blessedness of man, unto whom God imputed righteousness without works. Now, what would have happened to David if that were not true? What had David just done? He'd just, he'd just taken one of his captains of his army's wife and committed adultery with her, impregnating her. Then in order to cover up his sin, he had that man murdered, along with a number of the other captains of the army, sent to the front line, sacrificed them purposely to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. Now, if David's salvation was dependent upon his, the Mosaic covenant, wouldn't have made it. But it says, God imputed righteousness without work. And then he says, Blessed is a man, the redeemed, to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Look, if every one of your sins has already been paid for in the body of Jesus Christ, and he has bore that sin in his body, the essence of that truth is that God is not going to impute any sin to your account. Not Adam's sin, not even your own. Why? Because it has been satisfied. You are Complete in Jesus Christ. It is finished. Every sin you have ever committed, as far as God's concerned, the penalty of that sin, which is death, has been satisfied. That's propitiation of God. So, again, as we come to that, what is our message to conclude with you today? We are to repent of our own righteousnesses predominantly. Repent of our sin, yes, but of our own righteousnesses, we have none. To repent is to come to God and say, I have nothing to offer. I need mercy. That's repentance. Believe. Believe that every sin you've ever committed, God's wrath upon that sin has been satisfied by its payment in a substitute righteous one, Jesus Christ. who wants to give you his righteousness, justification by faith. If you will confess him to be Jehovah God incarnate in human flesh and will call upon his name, Jesus, to save you, Romans 10, 13, you will thereby receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ in the spirit of Jesus Christ. And you will become a son of God, a child of God. That's God's promise. All of faith, that's what defines faith, those five verbs. You hear it, you do it. That's what faith is. I hope you're born again today. If you have some doubts about it, I'd be glad to talk about it. I'll, I'll be carefully listen to any testimony you have. And I'll be honestly and brutally, brutally truthful with you. Because there's nothing more important here in this world right now for you than your own salvation and a new start and a new beginning. I trust that you'd think about this and be born again today. If you need some help, get the help you need. Don't uh, sit around and play patty cake with God because it's too serious a business. Our fathers, we close this time together this morning. We're thankful. For the great truths of your long-suffering with the nation of Israel, and even with those children of Israel who vacillated at the uh, introduction of Judaism into Christianity. We pray for the many today within Christianity who do the same thing in their liturgical Christianity, who just replace all of these things with other nonsense. We pray today that you'd bless and use this time. In Jesus' name, amen.